Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 3 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Oh, Wellington, look at this file. Hmm. Seems to be a correspondence between Lady Isabel Burton and former director Spring. The Lady Burton? As in wife of Sir Richard Francis Burton? I take it by your elevated tone that you are one of Sir Burton's disciples. I confess I am a bit of an amateur scholar when it comes to his translations. So we found a topic that will make you finally hit the books. Now I know why you've spent so much time in the back stacks, perusing his translation of the Kama Sutra, I presume. Reading expands the mind, exposes one to a variety of cultures. Is that what they're calling Sir Burton's escapades now? Indeed. Are you insinuating, Wellington Thornhill Books Esquire, that you are not intrigued, even in the slightest, with the sensual enlightenments and Richard Burton has brought home to the Empire. I do not find myself in need of such distractions. A shame, really. The Kama Sutra offers quite a challenge. The Flying Lotus position on page 109, for example, just seems impossible. Page 112. Oh, Wellington. How you continue to surprise... Blessings of Balshamin by Nobilis Reed. Narrated by Nobilis Reed and D. Reed. 3rd December, 1869. My dear Director Spring, I have just this evening returned from the residence of Alexander Jonin, the Russian consul in Damascus. Ostensibly, the event was an opportunity for the Europeans in the city to witness the unveiling of the Council's Autonomous Orchestra, which he termed the Omnimusicon. After enjoying the performance of this wondrous device and an elegant meal, the men continued their conversation while we ladies retired to the drawing-room. After perhaps fifteen minutes, there was a tremendous clap of thunder and a shout of surprise from the dining-room. A chill ran up my spine, and I knew that something was amiss. I leapt from my seat and crossed the residence as fast as my skirts would allow. My husband met me at the door, reassuring me that all was well. Mr. Jonin had brought out a bronze hexagram with strange inscriptions that had recently come into his possession. The object was an inch thick and ten inches across the widest part, with deeply inscribed characters upon six triangular points. Sir Richard, always eager to display the advantages of a broad education, proclaimed that not only were the inscriptions in an archaic form of Hebrew, quite possibly the same script used to inscribe the Ten Commandments, but that he could translate them, and did so right then and there. That was when the fell wind 
blew through the edifice. Sir Richard reassured me that the words on the hexagram were a benediction. They read, May the blessings of Balshaman fall upon this house as the sun falls upon the sand, as the rain falls upon the mountains, as the seed falls upon the field, as the grain falls to the scythe, as the concubine falls upon her master. Richard explained that the inscription was quite rare and unusual. Balshaman was a pagan god, so the inscription was rather a significant heresy against the Jewish faith. The Russian consul was quite pleased with not only this description, but also that it contained a specific verse relating to amorous pursuits. Sir Richard requested, and was granted, permission to take rubbings of the object. While he did so, I asked where the consul had obtained his treasure, and learned that he had bought it from Mr. Lederman, who had taken it in security for a loan. Mr. Lederman, who was also in attendance, did not seem pleased to learn that he had sold an object of such singular nature, and appeared quite irritated with the consul for gloating over the acquisition. I engaged Mr. Lederman in conversation, sympathizing with him over Mr. Jonin's rather ungentlemanly behavior, and attempted to learn what I could about the hexagram. He would not give me specifics, but, given his well-known policies regarding such loans, and the timing of the transactions in question, it seems likely that it was unearthed during our expedition to Palmyra last month during which many visitors went digging around in the ruins to find curios of one sort or another. Given the unnerving meteorological phenomena during Sir Richard's recitation of the inscription, my suspicions were aroused, and I decided to investigate the matter further. I called upon a friend, Lady Jane Digby El-Masrab, perhaps the most influential and well-connected European woman in Syria due to her marriage to a Bedouin sheikh. She has put aside her English heritage and gone native in every sense of the word. I showed her the rubbings, told her of the events at the council's residence, and my suspicions that the object might well have been unearthed in Palmyra. She assured me that those ruins held nothing but stones and sand, but after some persuasion she took out her Bible and pointed to a verse in First Kings that mentioned a rebel who raised up a small insurgent force against Solomon, king of Israel. Lady Digby explained that there was a legend she had heard many times among the Bedouin. This rebel, a man by the name of Reson, had stealthily made off with some piece of Solomon's magic. In wielding it, he gave the great king of Israel reason to look the other way, while Rezon set himself up as the first king of Syria. Furthermore, Rezon's tomb has never been discovered, nor has the great magic that he stole ever been found. If there was some great treasure to be found in Palmyra, it would be that. Her husband's people knew better than to look for it. Director Spring while the chances that this object is in fact a treasure of Rezon the Syrian may be slight, we cannot afford to ignore the possibility. The political situation here in Damascus is delicate, 
and the severe disruption of the status quo would have dire consequences. Please send a field agent as soon as you receive this letter. Most sincerely, Lady Isabel Burton. Postscriptum. Captain Burton suspects that I am involved in some intrigue of which he is not aware. I cannot express my frustration in strong enough terms. Please do not force me to choose between my loyalty to him and my loyalty to the crown. Fifteen February, 1870. My dear Director Spring, I once again implore you, in the strongest possible terms, to reconsider your decision not to act on the matter of the Palmyra hexagram. Yesterday evening, I received a visit from the Russian consul. He reported severe insomnia and all matter of nervous complaints, which he was unwilling to describe in any detail. The fact that he sought me, an Englishwoman, for assistance should be proof enough of his desperation. But his sunken eyes, twitching fingers, and haunted bloodshot eyes more than convinced me that he was a man holding on to his sanity by the thinnest of margins. I left him in my parlor with a pot of tea while I checked my stores of herbs and tinctures for something to ameliorate his condition. But when I returned, he accused me of attempting to poison him and departed in great haste. I spoke with Sir Richard about this event, and he was convinced, as I was, that something had gone amiss with the incantation of the Palmyra hexagram. Desiring to re-examine the incantation, he searched for his rubbings of the object, but we were unable to find them. At first, we believed that the consul had presented his complaint as an excuse to enter our home and abscond with the rubbings, but we soon discovered an open window from which we concluded that we had been burgled while the consul was present. The thief may have been working with the consul or some other party. There is no longer any time to watch and wait. I have done all that I can without risking a diplomatic incident. Please, Director Spring, we need a field agent with all haste. Truly yours, Lady Isabel Burton. Postscriptum. This is the last missive you will receive from me until the matter of entrusting Captain Burton with the knowledge of the Ministry is resolved. Unless I hear otherwise, you may consider this letter to be my resignation. I have informed you of a peculiar occurrence, and you have done nothing. I must regretfully conclude, therefore, that my services are not as critical to the Ministry as I was led to believe. One June, 1870. Agent Edward Henry Palmer. Having considered your recent complaints regarding the lack of field work for an agent of your caliber, I have uncovered a matter that might challenge your capabilities. Get one of the new recruits and investigate. That Drake fellow seems the right sort. Try not to spend too much money. Woodruff Spring. Director. Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. Incident Report. Professor E. H. Palmer, Senior Agent. Mr. Charles Tierwit Drake, Junior Agent. Reporting. 22 June, 1870. Professor Palmer and I arrived to a warm welcome by Sir Richard F. Burton and his wife Isabel. 
We were very careful not to discuss any ministry business in the presence of the consul, understanding that his wife was our contact rather than the consul himself. She received us at their residence, a few miles outside of Damascus, which was a welcome respite from the heat and smells of the city proper. From a distance the city looks like paradise, walls gleaming with whitewash and elaborately decorated minarets rising above the streets, but at ground level its vices more than make up for its virtues. Lady Isabel is a bright woman who has carried much of the vigor of youth into what would be middle age on any other. We would have been surprised to find her attired in Arab fashion if we had not been informed of the Burton's propensity for going native wherever they traveled. Indeed, their home showed a similar mixture of Europe and the Orient, with Persian rugs, a roll-top desk, Arab-style pillows for lounging, and a French full-length mirror as notable features. She briefed us on events at the Russian consulate under cover of gossip, letting us know with a nod and a finger alongside her nose that this was information critical to our mission. Strange sounds had been heard from the consulate day and night, unearthly screams and growls, wails of pain or ecstasy, and more that defied description. The locals now avoid the place, believing that a curse has befallen it. Guards patrol the grounds, but the consul has dismissed all the staff and has shut himself up inside the palatial domain. From there, it was not difficult to turn the conversation toward the cause of the Russian consul's strange behavior and to induce Sir Richard to tell the tale of the Palmyra hexagram. At this point, Professor Palmer inquired about the rubbing Sir Richard had taken, but they had been stolen around the time of the consul's last visit. Sir Richard's notes and sketches about the rubbings had not been taken, however, and he was happy to share them. Unfortunately, they shed little light on the situation. There were some strange curved lines inscribed in the back, but Sir Richard could not discern their purpose in the time he had to examine them. The Burtons had no more answers for us. Professor Palmer turned to me and asked, Charles, are you considering the same possibility I am considering? I think so, Professor, but where are we going to get an airship this time of night? Joking aside, our course of action was clear. The information we needed, along with the Palmyra hexagram itself, were in the Russian consul's residence. Lady Burton provided us with a sketch of the grounds and interiors, as she had encountered them on her infrequent social calls. An hour later, Professor Palmer and I were on the street, in native garb selected for us by Lady Burton herself. With darkness concealing our identities, we blended in well enough that we attracted no more than passing attention. As we approached the consulate, a shriek arose that seemed to come from hell itself, followed by a long, low moan. The sounds sent a shiver down my spine, but Professor Palmer squinted and cocked an ear. "'That's not a human cry,' he said. "'You're sure?' The shriek has overtones that a human throat could not produce, and it's missing others. It came from something on the order of a violin. And that moan? I asked. That moan had a bit of reed about it. Bass clarinet, I would think, or something quite like it. He clapped me on the shoulder. Take heart, Charlie. Both of those instruments were created to mimic the human voice. It's a credit to their inventors that you would find them so similar. Very well, but... Who's playing them? We spent some time watching from a shadowed alcove. The main gates were closed, and a single guard stood outside the walls. We watched and listened carefully for any activity. After an hour, we concluded that the guard at the gate was the only one on duty. Ready? asked Professor Palmer. Right behind you, I replied. A short distance away, we found a bit of wall shrouded in darkness, and well away from the guard's line of sight, we doffed our brightly colored native garb, under which we wore the midnight suits recently developed by the Ministry Clankertons. 
I am not ordinarily an aficionado of tight-fitting leather garments, but when one is sneaking into a foreign embassy intending to commit acts which may be considered burglary or worse, fashion is hardly the first consideration. The suede trousers, vest, brushed silk shirt sleeves, and deep hood, all dyed the blackest of black, drank the moonlight unquenchably. If I had not known where Professor Palmer was, he would have seemed no more than a shadow. Spike-tipped gloves and boots completed the ensemble. With their aid, we scaled the perimeter wall in moments, dropping into a lush garden on the other side. We made our way to the rear of the compound, where the consul's residence stood apart from the main building. Among the gleaming limestone and dark granite of the Damascene buildings, these high-peaked brick structures could not have been more out of place if they had been transported directly from the wealthiest districts of Moscow. Aside from the guard outside the gate, the entire compound appeared to be abandoned. No lights shone in any window, and the only sound was the occasional wail, shriek, or moan from the residents. Despite Professor Palmer's reassurances, I found it necessary to steel myself against impulses to flee that accursed place. The door to the residence stood ajar. Once we were safely inside, Professor Palmer and I ignited our chemical torches. By their dim red light, we sought out the source of the ghastly sounds that echoed through the halls. There you are, said Palmer, shining his torch on a wreck of machinery wheezing and rattling at one end of the spacious dining room. You asked who would play such hellish music. Not who, I replied, so much as a what. The machine had been beautiful once. The glass doors of its cabinets were smashed and broken, and most of the pins had been pulled from the steel control cylinder that rotated at its core. Its organ pipes were mangled and bent, its strings frayed, its bowing arms bent, and half its components hung from its structure like quivering entrails. The percussion section had been completely destroyed. This must be the Omnimusicon mentioned in Lady Burton's earlier reports, said Palmer. Only a madman would do such a thing, I said. Perhaps, replied Professor Palmer, or someone who wanted to scare away the superstitious, or both. I stepped toward the machine to stop its crippled agony, but the professor put his hand on my arm. Leave it, he said. The sound covers our movements. The consul may very well be about. That's right. He had been complaining of insomnia, hadn't he? Professor Palmer nodded. Precisely. He may be about, and I would not be interested in sharing the same fate as his Omnimusicon. We searched the rest of the house. With the shrieking and moaning of the Omnimusicon, now inspiring more melancholy than fear, we proceeded carefully, moving from room to room, looking for any clue to the hexagram's location. The consul's private study was in even worse condition than the Omnimusicon. His mahogany roll-top desk was smashed to flinders. The wallpaper scraped with strange glyphs, and a pile of ashes spilled from the fireplace in such profusion that the fire had scorched the rug. A large bookcase stood empty, its contents dumped on the floor. Last first, said Professor Palmer. I expressed my lack of understanding with a subtly delivered grunt. Palmer pointed to the glyphs inscribed on the walls. Bless you, I replied. No, no. That's the last is first in Russian. From the biblical verse? The last shall be first and the first last? No, that would be the future tense. This is present tense. The last is first. Hmm. Maybe. I sighed. I have no idea what it means. Nor do I, Charlie. 
Anything survived that fire? While the professor sifted through the remains of the desk, I scraped through the ashes, dragging bits of paper and book covers into the glow of the torch. There were many scraps, none of them terribly large. On the bottom of the pile, however, I uncovered a book that had escaped with only superficial damage. I pulled it out onto the carpet and brushed off the ashes with the fireplace broom. Professor, the thick tome's heavy leather binding had protected its pages from the worst of the flames. The only real damage was to an emblem on the cover. Whatever had affixed the elaborate shape to the book had failed. It rattled loose as I brushed the ashes and soot away. La science astrologique de l'Egypte ancienne, he read. Egyptian astrology? Yes, I've read this one myself. Quite authoritative. Palmer poked at the other scraps scattered before the hearth. Any sign of those rubbings Sir Richard took? No, if they were here, they were burned up completely. Alas, I have no doubt they would have shed some light on this mystery. Perhaps, if an agent of the Russian consul stole them in the first place, I turned the astrology book over in my hands. Why would this be in the fire? Because the consul believed it held some secret he desired to keep concealed. Bring it, and we shall see what it can tell us. I bundled the volume into my knapsack, adding the loop of metal that had fallen from the cover as an afterthought. We retreated to the Burton residence to examine the book more closely. Lady Isabel had remained awake to keep her dogs from announcing our return. We explained that the Russian consul had disappeared from the residence, along with most of the embassy guard. Evidently, her contacts had given the same information shortly after we left. However, the consul had disappeared into the desert to the north. There would be no way to track him unless we had some idea of his destination. Our only clue was the book, so we immediately set to examining it. Inside, we found that phrase, the last is first, scrawled into the margins, mostly in Cyrillic, but also occasionally in French. That, at least, I could translate for myself. Doodles accompanied the obsessive scrawls, looping circles and sweeping lines that were then scratched out with furious strokes. Most notes concentrated on the pages detailing Seba Jai, the ancient Egyptian name for the planet Venus. None of it gave us any clue as to the consul's destination. Twenty-three June, 1870. As the first rays of sun brightened the windows of the Burton residence, I caught a delightful scent. Immediately thereafter, a servant arrived with a tray bearing tea, honey cakes, and steaming bowls of porridge with butter and honey. All were beyond welcome. Sir Richard himself joined us in breaking our fast. As we tucked in, Sir Richard discovered the brass emblem that had fallen from my pack and picked it up, frowning. I don't recall this item being part of my collection. No, said Professor Palmer. My partner and I discovered it last night while we were out. Where's the other half? asked Sir Richard. Other half? Yes, this is part of an astrolabe a device for making measurements of the sun and stars and tracking the planets across the sky. It's used for navigation and astrology. This is the radar. It's useless without the plate. Do you have the other half? This one's quite unusually shaped. I'd be curious to see it. No, said Professor Palmer. We don't. What would such a plate look like? A disk with concentric curves, some straight lines associated with measurements of stars and planets. When you know where you are in respect to the sky, it's not hard to figure out where you are on the ground. Can it lead you to a specific destination? Uh, conceivably. So Richard turned the rater over in his hands. Are you sure this is somehow associated with the Palmyra hexagram? It's a very recent manufacture. He brushed some soot from its surface. It could be a reproduction. 
when we talked about the hexagram before, you mentioned lines and depressions in the reverse side. Could that be used as a plate? Don't that result in any kind of useful information? Perhaps, but this part here, it's not a normal reta. He pointed to a swooping curve in the device. This ought to correspond to the progress of the sun across the constellations, but it doesn't. It's too complicated. Could it track Venus instead, I asked. Possible. So Richard set down the object and retrieved a book from his library. From the earth, the sun and moon appear to move through the heavens in a steady way, always moving roughly the same direction. Because the relationship is a simple one, continued Professor Palmer. Earth orbiting the sun, Luna orbiting earth. Sir Richard flipped through the book. Exactly. But because both the earth and Venus orbit the sun, whenever it catches up to us, its place in the sky doubles back. He found the illustration he was looking for and set the book on the table. Retrograde motion. A specific curve. Just like this. I set the rata down alongside the illustration. The two curves matched. By Jove, you're right, said Palmer. Well done. Captain Burton stood up and scratched his chin. If I recall correctly, Baal Shemin, the pagan god invoked by the hexagram, had a concubine who was associated with the planet Venus. I snapped my fingers. Sir Richard, where is the nearest temple of Venus? There's one at Baalbek, he said, a couple of days' ride north. Ruins, of course, but... Then that's where he's gone, I said. You're sure? asked Palmer. No, it's a hunch, but I doubt the consul is working on much more information than we are. And if we don't find him soon, who knows what will happen. So Richard clapped his hands together. Sounds like a grand adventure. I shall assemble the horses and gear for an expedition. That won't be necessary, sir, I said, looking nervously to Professor Palmer. We can handle this. After all, you have duties here in Damascus. Nothing that can't wait a few days, said Sir Richard. I insist. Receipt of Materiel Obtained 23 June 1870 from Abdul Hassan Bakar, Merchant, Damascus. Waterskins, full, 16. Grain, feed, 6 10-pound sacks. Biscuits, hardtack, 4 cartons. Mutton, dried, salted, 4 pounds. Caviar, 2 ounces. Pistachios, 1 pound. Sultanas, 2 pounds. Apricots, dried, 1 pound. Dates, dried, 1 pound. Pork, cooked, six half-pound tins. Muscle liniment, one jar. Twenty-four June, 1870. Professor Palmer and I slept as best we could while the Burtons assembled the horses for a trip to Baalbek. Given that the consul was not an experienced traveler, we had some hope that we could catch up to him. As soon as the worst of the midday heat had passed, we were astride Lady Isabel's steeds and on our way to Baalbek. We stopped several times for Captain Burton to talk with people in the towns and villages we passed, and they reported that indeed a group of armed Europeans had passed just a day previously. At several occasions, they had arrived at a village at a walk, because their horses had been improperly fed and watered on the journey. Lady Isabel, on the other hand, knew exactly when and how much to give the horses what they needed, without causing them undue discomfort, greatly speeding our progress. Twenty-five June, 1870. We steadily narrowed the lead, but unfortunately we were unable to catch them before they reached the ruins at Baalbek. The four of us arrived at the hills overlooking the site a few hours after midday, and we stopped for Professor Palmer to survey the site using the duocular telescope. 
Congratulations, he said, peering through the device at the scene below. Your hunch appears to have been correct. There's a makeshift camp about a half a mile from the temple ruins, and a dozen or so men in Russian uniforms. A number of woebegone horses as well. Do you see the consul? I asked. Not unless he's wearing one of those uniforms. He passed me the duoculars, and I peered at the temple. Its walls and roof were still intact, constructed of heavy stone blocks. Intricate carvings were visible even from this great distance, and after a few seconds of searching, located a solitary figure stumbling about among the weathered stones. There he is, I said. Captain Burton pointed to a set of low walls and tumbled stones on the side of the temple opposite the camp. If we approach that way, we can avoid being seen by the guards. We'll also have the sun at our backs, Lady Isabel observed. Then we should move while we have that advantage, I said. We rode along the ridge until our shadows pointed directly at the temple, then hobbled them and approached the ancient structure on foot. As we grew closer, we could hear his shouts echoing in the empty spaces of the temple. What is he saying? I asked. He's calling for a priestess, said Professor Palmer, squinting as he concentrated on the sound. I believe so, said Captain Burton. I do believe he may be hallucinating. Lady Isabel drew her cloak up over her head, veiling herself in the manner of a Roman priestess. If he desires a priestess, perhaps it is best that he find one. I would have suggested that it was too dangerous to approach this madman, but then her husband drew a pair of revolvers from his belt and handed one to her. She nodded and tucked the offered weapon under her robes. Professor Palmer and I drew our own weapons, and while we readied them, Captain Burton remarked, Those are unusual pistols. Yes, sir, said Professor Palmer. Our patron supplied us with them. A more compact cartridge allows for ten rounds in the cylinder instead of five or six, but a more volatile powder permits them to have as much power as the larger caliber. An elegant solution, he said, holding out his own revolver to display an unusual mechanism attached just in front of the trigger guard. For my own needs, this is, I think, a more suitable answer to necessity. I call it the revolving revolver. Interesting, said Palmer, taking the bulky weapon in his hands. Am I correct in observing that this device replaces the cylinder as the rounds inside are expended? Quite right, said Captain Burton. Before he could continue, Lady Isabel hissed. If you boys are quite through comparing your weapons, we do have an urgent matter to attend. Indeed, said Professor Palmer, returning the revolving revolver to its owner. Another time, perhaps. With weapons seen to and attention focused, we crept toward the temple, following Lady Isabel's confident wake her long shadow stretching out before her like that of a titan. She said not a word, knowing that a shout would bring the guards. Instead, she simply waited at one of the entrances. Captain Burton, Professor Palmer, and I lurked out of sight as the consul's ranting shouts echoed off the stones. Motes of dust shone like flying embers in the shaft of orange sunlight that surrounded her. I did not understand his shouts. They were mostly in Russian, but he switched to Latin when Lady Isabel quietly addressed him in that language. It has been a few years since my studies took me in that particular linguistic direction, but I was able to make out most of their conversation. He repeated again and again that the last was first and that she must help him correct the grievous sin he had committed against the gods. She tried to keep him calm, but he only became more agitated, shouting, Samos Vanetka! Samos Vanetka! Captain Burton's face went pale, and he set his jaw. Imposter, he whispered, and stood from his hiding place with his pistol cocked. I followed a moment later, and to my horror, the consul had the bronze hexagram raised overhead, ready to smash down on Lady Isabel. His eyes were wide, 
rolling like those of a panicked horse, hair plastered to his head with sweat, his shirt ripped and soiled, a saber hung from one hip, and a gold chain with his medallion of office from his neck. He noticed us and stopped, staring down the barrels of three large revolvers. "'Put it down,' said Captain Burton. "'We can help you.' "'Help me? Help me! You're the ones who did this to me! You're the one who unleashed her into my dreams!' He roared again in Russian, but there was enough rationality remaining for him to realize his danger and lower the hexagram. Then his voice cracked, and he coughed and fell silent, eyes darting between us and the dark corners of the temple. "'Yes, it was my fault, my mistake, but I can make it right.' Sir Richard holstered his pistol and held out his hands. "'Show me the hexagram.' Jonian shook his head and backed away. "'No, no, you're with her. The dreams, the dreams!' Captain Burton took a step forward, and Lady Isabel moved to his shoulder, offering her own calming voice. He's the only one who can help you. Trembling with nervous energy, Janine took the heavy metal plate out from under his arm. He looked down at it and swallowed. He said something in Russian, then flinched as if struck in the face. Yes, said Captain Burton. You know I can help. Last is first, you said. That's the mistake I made. I read the verses in the wrong order. I got one of the prepositions wrong, but I don't know the precise words to say you need to show me the plate. You can't have it, the consul growled. You can hold on to it. I just need to read it. That will calm the spirit that torments you, I'm sure of it. He clutched the hexagram. I... A gunshot crashed like thunder through the silent sanctuary. Jonine tottered and fell backwards, the hexagram rattling across the floor. At the far end of the temple, silhouetted in the rapidly failing light, three figures stood, two of them with rifles raised. Through the ringing in our ears came a shout. Drop your weapons! All around us, more Russian soldiers revealed themselves. Behind tumbled rocks and fallen walls they crouched, rifles aimed and ready. We were surrounded. Our pistols clattered to the ground. Liederman, snarled Captain Burton. What are you doing here? The man approached slowly the two soldiers spreading out at his flanks. The man was tall, gaunt in the limbs, but with a pronounced pot-belly. His head was completely bald, but a long black beard hung down nearly to his navel. A pair of spectacles glinted, perched on the end of his nose. "'I have you to thank,' said Lederman. "'You revealed the purpose of the hexagram. You revealed the clues to the translation. Unfortunately, the consul here had become too careful while in Damascus, and I was unable to recover the hexagram.' but I was able to guide his research, convince him that the Temple of Venus held the cure to his madness. He stooped to pick up the hexagram, then glanced at the stricken consul gasping at his feet. Turns out he was right. What do you want? Why, isn't it clear? I want the blessings of Balshemin. I want them for myself. Clearly, there is power here if it is properly harnessed. I want that power. Never! No? Liederman's eyes narrowed. I advise you not to refuse me, Burton. If you do, these men shall shoot your lovely wife first. The first shot will not be lethal, but the second or third might be. After that they will shoot your friends here, and then they will shoot you. Read the word now. Speak it, and speak it properly, and I will spare your lady Isabel's life. I know a sheikh in Egypt with a particular taste for English women. He would pay handsomely for another lady for his harem. Never! shouted Lady Isabel. Liederman ignored her. Your other option is to refuse me. 
Then we shoot all of you, starting with her. Then I pursue the translation on my own. It may take me some time to find the appropriate references, but if you were able to learn this script, then I can learn it too. But how much more satisfying would it be to hear the prayer from your own lips? Do that for me, and your lovely lady wife will live. Otherwise, we kill all five of you. Slowly. Captain Burton narrowed his eyes. You'll never get away with it, he spat. I think you underestimate me, Captain Burton. This area is notorious for banditry. When I return to Damascus and tell of the terrible slaughter, the desert tribe that swooped in and caught us by surprise, none shelled out me. He held the hexagram toward Captain Burton. Now, he said, read. It's getting too dark. I can't see the inscription. You are being stalling, shouted Lederman, his accent thickening as his anger rose. Read, or your wife dies. I nudged Professor Palmer and whispered, Get ready to move. You grab Captain Burton. I've got Lady Isabel. He gave the slightest of nods, and I put a hand slowly to the gear at my belt. I have a light, Captain, I said, but the device I took from its loop was not one of the chemical torches. I threw it to the ground, and a cloud of smoke erupted around us. I scooped up my pistol, took Lady Isabel's arm, and ran. To her credit, she let out only the slightest sound of surprise as we dashed for cover. Kill them! shouted Lederman in between coughs. Kill them all! We took cover behind a huge block of fallen stone and an intact wall. Rifles roared and ricochets rang in the huge chamber, adding even more confusion. We returned fire, but the smoke and noise did as much to conceal Lederman as it did ourselves. By the time it cleared, he had disappeared. We poked our pistols around the stone, firing back against the hail of bullets. Captain Burton pointed off to our right, at a Russian soldier running off to one side. That one! He's trying to flank us! We shifted our fire, but the man was moving too fast. Too fast for everyone but Lady Isabel. She drew the revolver from her robes and took him down with a single shot. That will keep their heads down, said Captain Burton. Well done, Isabel. It won't get us out of this temple, she replied. They've got all the exits too well covered. If we can hold out for a bit longer, perhaps we can escape under cover of darkness, said Professor Palmer. Captain Burton rotated another cylinder into position in his revolver. I doubt our ammunition will last that long. We're outnumbered, and they can send men back to their camp for fresh ammunition. I have another smoke emitter, I said. If I throw it at the group over there... Captain Burton shook his head. Then they might be blinded for a minute or so, but if we try to run for an exit, the others will have us in their sights before we go three steps. I'm afraid there's only one recourse. No, Richard, said Isabel, putting her hand on his arm. You can't give in to his demand. I would rather die at your side. His mustache twitched as he gave her a wink. I know, he said. I meant the only thing to do now is pray. Then suddenly there was a great whooping and shouting, an entire tempest of hoofbeats and gunshots outside the temple. One of the soldiers fell, and then another, and those that were still standing looked around in panicked confusion. They tried to take cover from the sudden attack, but there was no place to hide that would protect them from both the unknown assault outside and our own deadly gunfire. Within minutes, all of the embassy guards had fallen, surrendered, or fled. A full score of robed figures advanced through the temple entrances, sabers and muskets at the ready, with Lederman prodded before them, his hands over his head. Careful, said Professor Palmer. We may have been saved from the frying pan by the fire. But Lady Isabel jumped to her feet. One of the figures stepped forward and took Lady Isabel in a warm embrace, and I was surprised to hear an elderly woman's voice from under the shrouding headdress. 
Lady Isabel looked back to see Professor Palmer and I staring, and no small amount of confusion. Professor Palmer, Mr. Drake, please allow me to introduce my good friend, Lady Jane Digby Almisrab. You may have seen her name in some of my reports. She indicated an impressively bearded gentleman with an equally impressive jeweled dagger on his belt. This is the Sheikh Abdul Mijwal Al-Mesrab. We came as fast as we could, said the man, but you ride fast on those marvelous horses of yours. Are you injured, my dear? asked Lady Digby. Isabel smiled. No, I am fine. We are all fine. None of us were hurt thanks to your timely intervention. Not all of us, said Captain Burton, kneeling by the injured consul. He had managed to drag himself a short way in the fight, but the spreading bloodstain on the floor showed that his time was short. Sir Richard directed his gaze at Liederman. Where is the hexagram? No man deserves to go to his grave under a curse. I think this is of what you speak, Mazrab asked. He produced the hexagram and handed it to Captain Burton. I thank you, he said with a bow of his head and placed the hexagram on the consul's chest. Solemnly, but without delay, he spoke the ancient prayer as the last rays of sunlight gradually departed the floor of the temple. A glowing nimbus surrounded the bronze device, spreading through the consul's hands and into his body. Motes swirled and danced in the air above him, spinning faster and faster, their glow increasing with their speed, until the glare was so intense I had to shield my eyes. Then the glow faded, and the golden motes fell upon the consul's recumbent form. A rattling wheeze exited his body, and he breathed no more. Professor Palmer strode forward and put his hand on Captain Burton's shoulder. He was your friend. He was a right bastard, he said as he closed the man's staring eyes. Corrupt, greedy, and intolerably smug. He took pleasure in making my work difficult in whatever small way he could, whenever he could. But he didn't deserve this. What of the hexagram? I asked, glancing nervously at the Bedouin around us. Mesrab laughed and raised a hand. Ah, do not worry. I want no part of this thing. A man who has faith in Allah has no use for pagan blessings. Captain Burton stood holding the hexagram out to Professor Palmer. You're with the Palestine Exploratory Fund. I'm sure there's some museum that would be happy to lock this thing away in a glass case somewhere. Or better yet, in some dusty locker deep underground, I suggested. Professor Palmer took the hexagram and wrapped it in his jacket. Indeed, not unlike where it came from. Go, then, said the sheikh. Take this troublemaking thing away. My men will make sure there is no evidence you were here. As far as anyone will learn, these men were simply ambushed in a bandit attack. And him? asked Captain Burton, indicating Mr. Lederman as he rose to his feet. Ah, this parasite, he spat. I have a friend in Medina who could use a new eunuch. And if he wants to keep his tongue in his head, said Lady Jane, he'll make sure it stays still. A week later, Professor Palmer and I said our goodbyes to Lady Isabel on the dockside in Beirut. Captain Burton had stayed behind in Damascus to help settle a dispute that threatened to become a riot. "'Your husband knows who we represent, doesn't he?' asked Professor Palmer. "'He might suspect. He is a ranking official in the Foreign Ministry. He does have access to certain privileged information.' "'Well, you don't need to deceive him any further,' said Palmer. "'I just received word from the director.' You are permitted to bring your husband into your confidence regarding the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. A great smile lit up Lady Isabel's face. Oh, that's marvelous! I can't tell you how happy I am. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Lady Isabel, I said. Without your diligent service, who knows what might have been. Farewell. Godspeed, gentlemen. Godspeed. Three July, 1870. Dear Professor Palmer, you are hereby officially reprimanded for disclosing or causing to be disclosed the existence of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences to one Sir Richard Francis Burton on or about 25 June 1870. A copy of this letter will be placed in your permanent record. Woodruff Spring, Director, Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. Nobilis Reed has a dirty mind, and he's not afraid to use it. His short stories and novellas have been published with Circlet Press, Forbidden Fiction, Logical Lust, and Sizzler Editions. His podcast, Nobilis Erotica, presents erotic science fiction and fantasy stories to thousands of listeners every month. And he is the creative director of Quiver and Arch, LLC, producing erotic audio drama. You can find his website at nobiliserotica.com and his podcast at nobilis.libsen.com. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Dawn's Early Light, now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print and digital formats. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And imagine that studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.